Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from the Crisp Drawer, Season 2, Episode 2, Cheese Stick Trap, <laughs> recorded March 2nd, 2019. Sorry for the uh, long delay since we've actually uh, had an episode, February, after the uh, February episode, or the actual, no, the late January episode post-Ace uh, Combat, Resident Evil, and stuff like that, there wasn't really much to talk about, at least not much in my world. Uh, I mean, Smash Bros. is good. Like, in, in gaming, a lot of stuff was going pretty well, but I just didn't f- have the uh, real energy to put up a, l- a lot of uh, talk on stuff I wasn't really sure about. Like, am I going to bring this up, or should it just sit in the corner, or is it not worth talking about sort of stuff? And, you know, it was really slow to think of. There wasn't much going on. I mean, there was a little bit going on, but it wasn't really anything exciting. It was a lot of political stuff that it, me as a political scientist felt really bored discussing or thinking about, so I couldn't, if I couldn't get myself hyped up about it, how am I going to get you interested in it? So that's why February was pretty much a month off. Um, I was able to get away for a little bit. I went to um, Phoenix, Arizona, specifically Scottsdale in Phoenix, Arizona. The city of Scottsdale is within the, the metro area of Phoenix. Just for five days, it wasn't super warm there. I mean... It was like high teens, not maybe got into twenty twenty one. It did rain one day. It it wasn't as relaxing as it should have been, but it still was pretty. It was good to get away, especially since that was like one of the coldest weeks we had in February here. But granted, it was insane across the United States. I mean, Palm Springs had a lot of weather coming in, uh, a lot of rain. Um, <laughs> Las Vegas had snow. Tucson had a lot of snow. Um, it was pretty crazy. My dad experienced a lot more of that than I did. I just experienced like a day of rain and a little bit of drizzle the day afterwards. So nothing really to complain about there. You know, it could have been nice if it was like wearing shorts all day, but it wasn't bad. It was like mid-spring in Calgary was the weather down there. So <laughs> I'm not going to complain about that. I, you know, I didn't need to have summer in uh, in Phoenix at that point in time. <laughs> so so there was that and and. Speaking of which, February, we did get the cold weather that we were supposed to get. It brought, like, some ridiculous amounts of uh, cold, actually. Um, we haven't had that many of a Chinooks, like, warming spells. So normally we have, like, two weeks of cold and then, like, a week of sh- of a Chinook. And the Chinook is going to take temperatures from, like, negative 20 to give them to, like, plus 5. Like, there's going to be melting. We just haven't really had that. Which has bring us to a problem about the roads here in Calgary. So the street I live on uh, is a... Uh, snow route in the city and snow routes mean that it, the the uh, city government issues a 24 or 48 hour parking ban on the road and they'll come and uh, push the snow off to the side of the road and then they'll come and extract it and put it in dump trucks and take it away well they didn't do that in my street so of course we've now got this like two and a half foot thick wall of of snow that's becoming ice that's blocking cars from really pulling in close enough onto the uh to the sidewalk to be safe I mean, it is a wide road, so it's not really that bad, but it's just messy, and they didn't really get around to it. And, of course, uh, people complain about how the snow routes are, like, enacted. Places aren't hit. Snow route ends. People park, and it gets bad. And then the places that uh, the crews do go to, but people don't move away because don't drive their cars or park them somewhere else, they don't really tow the vehicles, so it doesn't really allow them to... Um, really get on with their job of clearing it. They sort of have to work around stuff and then 
you know, trucks and cars. And then they, of course, those vehicles get stuck in then have to break the ice and snow to get out. And people complain about that. It, it's sort of a really bad situation where there's a lot of, um, like, b- the idea of the snow route is a, is a good idea that you should have cars not park on that route to allow people to completely, um, to allow the crews to get in to remove the snow so the road is easier to, tra- to traverse and it's safer to park on. The problem is, is much like all governments, is that the idea is great and the execution is subpar at best. Now, private companies, if, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that it was the government crews doing it or uh, contractors that weren't really getting benefits of it, like I would say for, the, for it to be done effectively by a private company, they have to really get rewarded. They have to have high incentives and rewards for doing it. And they have to be like lower pay, like penalties if they fail to get to it. Now, if it turns out that these are city-hired, city crews only doing that work, that explains why it's not being as quickly. If it's private crews that are being contracted in, why is the city not getting a deal where the faster they get done, the more those guys get paid, but if they fail to meet certain places and get certain roads done, then they, they just forfeit like the expense on that and say, like, we're not paying you until these are done, and you got to get on it. But also, like, the punishment of... Um, the people who are parking, who stay parked. And I don't like the idea of, oh, just because it's snowing, you get your car towed. Like Sometimes it has to be done, and I understand that's a really bad inconvenience. And it's, it's frustrating as hell. If you are, especially if it's not your house, like you're visiting somebody for that night, and you don't know about the snow rules, and they don't tell you. Like, let's say they live in a... Uh, you know, you couldn't park on their street. Let's say they live a street over from a snow route, but you parked on the snow route street, and thus your car gets towed. And, of course, they who the place you're staying at, they, they only they only park in their main road, which isn't the snow route. So there are problems to it, and I think the, the, the Calgary City government could do a lot more to address it and fix the situation up. Will they? <laughs> I don't know. Um, they've done a bit better this winter than they did last winter. I'll, I'll at least say that. Um, I've also seen a lot of the private crews that are hired by the county and the, the province to handle larger uh, roadways like the Main Ring Road, Stony Trail around Calgary, and Deerfoot. Those groups have done better. Um, for instance, on Thursday night, they were expecting snow on Friday morning. Not that much, like maybe one centimeter metric. Um, but when I was driving from my parents' house to here, I saw six heavy plows going on to to uh, stony trail which is good because that means hey and that's a private company that does that they're contracted to do it they they were ready to go and multiple times i've seen these private crews pre-station themselves in places that there are always heavy traffic where they need to get on it the fastest i've always seen that i i'm not saying i don't see city crews do that i just see it less it seems like the city is more often than not playing catch-up versus the private companies which are out in advance as quickly as possible. Like they actually predict worse than they can deal with, and they try to get up there a bit ahead of time. But you know, it, it's been weird, especially like um, how the city, for a period of time, always considered Chinooks as a method of snow removal. Like if you move it around enough, eventually a heat wave uh, Chinook will come through and melt a considerable amount of it, so thus you don't actually have to worry about removing the snow. Well, this year, um, last year, last winter, we had a lot more snow in very concentrated times. Like, you know, within two days, there'd be a lot of snow and very quickly. And then you build up and then there'd be the Chinook, but it would only come through for a short period of time. Like it would go from maybe 15 to plus 10 
relatively quickly. But then when it changed, it was a ton of snow. Here we haven't really had the change anymore. It's been just more consistently cold, and it's been slowly building up. Like there's been a few days where it's been considerable amount of snow, but it more isn't like hey, snow falls on Thursday. That's that's removing from a parking lot. It's more snow falls Monday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, now we have to remove it from the parking lot because that's a considerable amount of snow that's built up after, like, four days of snowfall. Frick. Um, so, yeah, it was just the weather's been weird. Um, the Pacific's been really strange. Like, PC uh, <clears throat> has gotten colder weather than it's really used to, which was funny because I saw a um, – a video from uh, Glo- the Global News in BC seeing this car drive around in the snow while everyone else is panicking, and the guy yelled out, look at the license plate, and of course it had an Alberta license plate, because we're used to snow here. I don't think we're... Uh, this has been a longer cold snap than we're us- than I'm used to, but uh, granted, it's because I've been so used to the last five years of it going cold to warm, cold to warm, cold to warm. And I do remember back in my like earlier days uh, in the 90s when I was a younger kid, these cold snaps stuck around for a while. So maybe this is just a periodic shift in the weather patterns for southern Alberta. Although snow in Tucson is a little strange <laughs> and flooding out of, um, of areas in, uh, well, Palm Springs getting flooded from a lot of rain. That's, that was interesting. And Las Vegas having measurable snow for the first time in a few... I think it was five years. It wasn't that long, but it was five years since they've had measurable snow. Um, but yeah, there, there, that's an argument for... The, the climate is changing in a way. I i don't know if that's completely because of um, man, man-made an increase in carbon dioxide and hydrocarbons entering the atmosphere. But we're definitely not helping it, and the sooner we get better systems of energy, such as nuclear power, um, these new salt-based thorium reactors, if that works, that would be really, really good because they're considerably easier to use. Um, but it's, it's things like this that we see as we're going on and developing technology and looking for better energy sources, how, um, how oil and gas have gotten us a considerable long way, and, and coal has too, let's not forget coal, but there's always a better alternative if we work towards it. Now, it, this stuff is not going to be cheap. Um, bringing up the idea of uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, like $93 trillion is like one of the higher up estimates, and that's not the full end of uh, transforming the United States' economy in a very short period of time. It, it's a ridiculous idea. It's ridiculous in that the government thinks that they can actually do this and be efficient. And I do say that there is evidence in a corporatist culture that corporations do not view um, pollution as a negative. They will eventually, but they don't view it now. I think in a much more open capitalist system, many of the capitalist companies would realize like, hey, environmental destruction is actually a net negative for us. We should try to avoid it. Corporations in the corporatist, uh, cronyistic society that is more prevalent in the United States and Canada... I wouldn't say they're dominant, but it seems like government does pick winners more often than not and tries to get involved in it, which I'll bring up in a later topic today. Um, We see that those companies that have um, very good tie-ins with the government are much slower to adapt to a changing environment, to a changing uh, economy, and to the desire of of, um, what the people want. 
it just seems to be they are much slower to react to um, improving efficiencies because they're so well connected to a bureaucracy they don't believe that they could really change too much. But that's just my opinion. That's just me. Uh, there's probably examples where some companies that worked with the government were probably had a green initiative and probably worked really well in that area. But again, like I'm talking, but that would be a specialized. I'm talking about broad sense. Like defense contractors are always very slow to adjust their ways unless the government forces the that to go. Oil companies are, if they are getting heavy subsidies from the government are very reluctant to change a lot of stuff for fear that they could lose those subsidies. Same with farming. Like As soon as the government starts handing out money, you're very hesitant to change your way if you mean that you could potentially lose some of that free money in a way, <laughs> that subsidy that you don't deserve. Like you're, Your profit's $100 billion, but you're getting $5 billion from the U.S. government as well. Or, you know, like your industry's getting $25 billion in uh, in tax savings and some indirect, uh, I wouldn't say kickbacks, but like indirect incentives of like the government paying you to do the job that you're already getting profit for anyway. And that, and that is a problem. And I think that uh, if the government was less involved in that aspect of the economy, these companies would probably be much more willing to move in that uh, move to become more efficient and reduce uh, damage to the environment they're operating in. So that's, that's a little diatribe on that. Is that a diatribe? I, I use the word diatribe, and I don't absolutely know what it means. Uh, diatribe. Let's see what this actually means. Uh, a forceful and bitter verbal attack against somewhere or something. Okay, so that is definitely not a diatribe. <laughs> wow. I've used that word three times incorrectly uh, that I know of. <laughs> So um, let's go on to another thing. Let's let's do a quick little peek into American politics here. Uh, Lisa, the State of the Union, uh, otherwise known as SATU, happened. Uh, I didn't even watch it. <laughs> I, I didn't watch it, didn't watch any responses. It's sort of ridiculous. Like The State of the Union is really a campaigning platform for the president and his party. It doesn't, it's it's like, oh, here's what we, sometimes it's a good, like, perspective of here's what we did. Sometimes there's things that you should be happy about, like, hey, the economy's up, but it always feels like it's just a government-funded campaign speech, and I'm against that. Anyway, the, you know, the the U.S. primaries are for president are starting in the Democratic, uh, the National Democratic Party, the DNC. Um so we've got a bunch of people. Let's uh, the few I can name. Uh, we have uh, Joe Biden is considering it. We know that um, Cory Booker is going for it. Camilla Harris from uh, California is definitely going for it. Uh, Bernie Sanders is definitely going for it. And we've got a few more. I mean, they, they they've got a. I don't know how many are actually going to run, but there's a considerable amount. I think it was like ten candidates are going to try for the presidency nomination, and that's what we're going to hear about for a considerable period of time until the um, the national convention next year in 2020 I like I, I the only thing will be interesting is does the far left side of the Democrat party win out or does the center left like the more centrist part of the party the, I wouldn't say rational I'd say the less dogmatic the more the more willing to compromise the more willing to uh, take softer stances on things to work out to, to see um the more willing to negotiate and, um, you know, compromise sounds bad, but more the more willing to approach 
an adversary and try to find a mutually beneficial solution versus saying, oh, you're, you're a conservative Republican. I don't want to deal with you. Socialism all the way. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, will have a will suffer in some way, state or form. If um, if Hillary tries to rejoin and wins, there's going to be a lot of the far leftists that feel like she joined in to burn, burn uh, a lot of people down and shut Bernie Sanders down again. Uh, Biden probably has the highest chance of winning if he decides to run, but he's an old guy. I mean, he's very old. He's kind of creepy. Be uh, when I mean by creepy, I mean like there's a lot of pictures of him touching and smelling like kids and women's hair in weird ways. It's like I'm not saying there's anything nefarious there, but it's just a little odd. Like when you look at it, it's kind of like you're the creepy uncle Joe. Like you're 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 wholesome, but you, what you do is really strange sometimes. And that's where I'm taking that from. I'm not saying that he's actually like done anything wrong. I have no evidence of that, and <laughs> I would be shocked if he did commit infidelity. But at the same time, I would be shocked if he didn't just because politicians also, like a considerable portion of politicians are just, you know, their personality doesn't change much. But again, that's complete conjecture, speculation, and I I don't know. Like Joe Biden is a nice enough guy that I could handle him being president after he was VP for Barack Obama. He doesn't seem to be too much of an ideologue. He seems to be much more of a, hey, let's work together and try to make a better America. But I don't know if that's what the left-wing part of the Democratic Party wants. And I don't know if the Republicans and the individual... And uh, it would depend if he is able to hold on to that uh, more centrist, independent um, point, if he's able to get them on their side, or if he goes too far left-wing to win the nomination, and thus the independents, which are... The majority of the uh, United States' population uh, says that they're independent. And then when it comes to political affiliation, it will be who can grab them. I know I don't think they have the Democrats have anyone who can directly beat Trump in a head-on race, but we'll see what the next year and a half brings. Until November, uh, like November eighth or whatever, two thousand twenty, uh, we'll see what happens. A lot can happen. Um, also depends if Trump will remain the nominee for the uh, Republican Party. It would be very strange for them to choose somebody else, but heck. We live in weird times, and weird things can happen in weird times. So, let's go on. Uh, this is a little bit of an old news, but I still find it interesting, is that China has claimed to successfully tested a railgun they put on an old uh, sort of tanker slash re- re- replenishment ship. Um, will this, the question is, will this speed up the, the U.S. Navy's development of their railgun and their hypervelocity weapon systems? Because the U.S. has shown off their railgun multiple times and the fact that it can shoot multiple projectiles, uh, quite simultaneously, um, in very short succession accurately. But will this continue to be where the U.S. government, the U.S. Navy wants to put their weapon systems, or are they going to move more to missile systems, or are they considering the laser systems? The other thing is um, ships that have enough power to do it. Like this replenishment ship could be totally upgraded to put a lot of power banks and a lot of power supply systems to just make sure this railgun works effectively. Um, pretty much like the best ships to do it will be Anything that's nuclear-powered will have the benefit of powering a weapon system like this, as well as lasers and intercepting technologies and solid-state weapon systems that could actually provide this kind of firepower. I'm not saying that the uh, a U.S. destroyer, an Arleigh Burke destroyer with its uh, gas turbine engines, couldn't produce enough power to do this, much like uh, you know, diesel-powered um, heavy transport ships couldn't 
could do uh, this as well. I guess the question would then become, would it be efficient at doing it consistently? Or would it be like, we have to charge a battery system up versus a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier using like railguns or nuclear-powered aircraft carriers or nuclear-powered ships in general would be much more efficient because nuclear power is just always generating a considerable amount of power and would always be able to do that. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, I've read various... Um, speaking of military stuff, uh, one thing I do like about my news feed is I've been able to see a lot of um, interesting talks uh, about where the military is going, uh, how how even from some of the... how the uh, Let me collect my thoughts here. Um, Boeing is making a new version of the F-15 known as the F-15X. It's taking from their F-15S Silent Eagle package and some other stuff to make it a 4.5 generation fighter jet. It looks like the U.S. Air Force is considering buying it. We also know the U.S. Air Force uh, is buying a lot of F-35As. They have, uh, they've cannibalized a few of the damaged F-22s to repair other ones, but there's been document. To, uh, they've been talking to a bunch of pilots and uh, national defense. Uh, one of the magazines I read was discussing how how stealth, even though um, nations such as Russia and China say they have radar that can track st- stealth, can they defeat stealth? As in, like, hey, we can see your plane on our big radar array, but does that radar array have enough power to communicate that signal down to a missile system? And then do the individual warhead flying at the target to actually take out that stealth? It's still very hard to defeat or not. Now, there are some exceptions to that, much like how the uh, F-117 Nighthawk over uh, Serbia was shot down, how that was optically guided in by... Uh, I think they. I don't know if they walked it in via sight with Chinese assistance, with the Chinese guys actually helping the Serbians shoot the missile, or if it was using thermal, uh, probably using infrared to direct it. See, that's so you can defeat stealth, but stealth has gotten better at reducing the infrared signature, which is why the B-2 is still, like, one of the deadliest platforms ever made. Like, that thing could sneak into your radar defense system, and the Russian Russian S-300 and S-400 missiles may not even be able to engage it. Some, uh, you know, multi-point uh, receiving radar array where one array is shooting off and another array is actually picking up, and that's how the radar system comes up. That might be able to spot a B-2 but that may not be able to give a consistent uh, signal to a missile to target it. And it's interesting to see that, and yet how expensive stealth is, how many nations are not... Um, they do want it, but it seems like it's becoming... An, it's like the price of it hasn't really dropped, and because we haven't seen any major like major great power fight versus great power fight, thankfully, that um, stealth seems to be a sort of a last-ditch event advance in weapon systems right now uh, eventually drones will will take up that stance because stealth is to increase the survivability of the pilot now if you can get to drones which uh, boeing showed off a drone that will basically be fly with pilots um fly with other human piloted aircraft and will work as buddies for them to provide air defense and air superiority capabilities a lot like uh, <laughs> the drones that were in Ace Combat 7, which is kind of like, uh, the Ace Combat Red actually made fun of that. It was like, we all know how this goes, right, boys? <laughs> it, it's funny. But what um, what is interesting about that is is that uh, drones may be, considerably more, may be considerably more expensive now per airframe, but eventually at a point, the survivability of the pilot is going to cost more than just buying the airplane. 
and drones will become more useful. It's like, oh, well, we can make drones that don't need a life support system. So that cuts off a bit of weight, allowing them to become even more stealthier and smaller and yet carry more munitions and maybe become more effective on target. Who knows? We also know that Boeing uh, or Lockheed is testing their uh, air refueling drone for the U.S. Navy. There's a lot of things could be going on. Um, Could it be that the piloted uh, combat airspace will slowly start to shrink and shrink? Now, for countries like the United States, uh, potentially Russia and China, that's going to be a benefit. I don't know if China will jump on it because they have such a huge inventory of population for their armed forces that they could probably grab from it. But pilots are considerably more expensive to train than an engineer on a ship or a soldier with a rifle. So it is a it is the most expensive uh, standard weapon system that could be deployed as a fighter jet because you're talking about a multi-million dollar aircraft with a multi-million dollar engine with a multi-million dollars worth of training to make sure the pilot can actually get through to the mission with expensive weapon systems. Now, the weapon systems, it's like, well, those are going to be ex- spent anyway. So if the, the airplane gets shot down with them or if it's able to expend its weapon systems before getting shot down... From a military standpoint of budget cost, that's not really that bad. But losing um, airframes and expensive pilots in one-off missions is considerably more um, more daunting, especially considering that it can be four to six years to properly train a pilot to be an effective combat system up there. Like you have to send them, you have to get them trained, you have to understand their aircraft, and then they have to fly to, uh, you know, they have to go to, you know, multiple dogfight training scenarios like red flag in the United States and then they have to get used to flying in adverse conditions landing in adverse conditions like they don't get to take off when it's beautiful weather out when it's 21 degrees on the deck and has almost you know has five knots wind like they they fight in some of the most adverse conditions that they possibly can get up in and that and that's expensive and that takes a very special sort of person to do that and I don't know uh, that's a very expensive um, process to get to. So we'll, we'll see um, where, where that technology goes. And continuing on from that, uh, let's discuss uh, <laughs> the military news from India and Pakistan, where Indian aircraft bombed out what they claimed was a terrorist uh, camp, and then Pakistan shot down one of their pi- one of uh, India's MiG-21s and captured a pilot, and then uh, India has now claimed that they shot down. Uh, they claimed as of two days ago that they shot down uh, one of the uh, Pakistani F-16s, which I've only seen claim marks. I haven't actually seen any true evidence of that. But it is a concerning uh, event happening. It's interesting how it looks like... Uh, I, I don't want to say that cooler heads have prevailed yet cause, because it, stuff can definitely change in a moment there. But it looks but both those countries are to their powers, which means uh, at least from a hopeful standpoint that there is a considerable portion of their population uh, or at least of the military commanding groups in both those countries that basically all they do is say let's not start a war. Let's not start a a shooting conflict which could be extremely dangerous and extremely could extend on. And from that going forward, from this conversation, not uh, not speaking of China, of uh, India and Pakistan anymore, but how we could see considerable problems coming out of Venezuela. Like, could Venezuela become a civil war that then could become a regional war? Now, Venezuela has a has the world's largest known oil res uh, oil supply. That could be an argument for why um, 
many nations, many great powers and potentially superpowers who would want to get involved in this. I don't know why. Um, if Venezuela collapsed, I don't think it would be the benefit of the United States, China, or Russia to intervene in any way. State. I don't think that China has the mil- military power to do so. I don't think Russia has the military power to do so. And I don't think the United States would be at an advantageous situation to basically sort of um, invade and occupy Venezuela. I don't think it would be a beneficial thing. But I also don't think, uh, and this but is not invade, it's could Brazil or some of the other powers in the area become um, much more threatening and much more dangerous? Uh, Could it become that these guys start launching rebel campaigns from other countries and that's that draws in some more powers. I don't think there'd be a proxy where they would draw on the big guys. I think what might happen is you might see a region of instability and could potentially, like, if Venezuela becomes a failed state, that's a very concerning situation because there hasn't been a lot of failed states post the, post the end of the Cold War that have really returned effectively. Now, granted, those failed states have all happened in places like Africa and, uh, and Asia. They haven't happened in an economically beneficial place. Like, Somalia doesn't have a lot of uh, mineral resources at its disposal. Venezuela has a lot of mineral resources at its disposal. Like, again, it has the largest oil reserve in the world. Known. I have to always say that. And it's growing conditions all year round. Like, it's the perfect temperature to grow any crop you could possibly want. So, I don't think there would be a benefit um, I don't think it would stay a failed state for a long period of time. I think it would be a very short-term failed state situation. But still, that is a concerning perspective to look at. I would rather not have Venezuela fall. And I fear that a civil war case would be bad. What you almost sort of want is Maduro to be ousted in a very quiet way. Like, of the second-in-command of the military just basically goes to him and says, like, you've got 24 hours to leave the country. Or we're just putting you under house arrest like we're not going to kill you we're not we're just going to move you away i think his death would be a damaging thing any form of assassination against him or any of his high ups would be um a tinderbox for that country i don't think it would really start in a fire that would spread beyond it but it depends on if the refugees who have gone to panama gone to venezuela gone to brazil i mean uh, gone to colombia gone to brazil if they become militia groups that launch operations and fights into, which would be a concerning effort, which would bring those nations' governments to bear and say, like, hey, this is a war that's now involving us. How do we get involved? Or might it be better to get involved? And you, you don't want to see a tribalism or a tribalistic breakdown in Venezuela. And hopefully that does not happen. <laughs> but it, it's terrible what's happening to the Venezuelan people. Venezuelan government seems to be in this weird place where Maduro and his people are fine. The opposition, like some of the opposition are in good condition, but most of them aren't. But then you've got all the regular people who probably wouldn't, couldn't, don't give a shit about who the president is and who isn't the president. They just want, hey, I want to be able to go to work. I want to go home. I want to be able to feed my family. I want my kids to go to school. I want my husband to have a job. I want my wife to do what she wants. Like, you know, that sort of thing. Just you know, live the average dream of hey, we're we're doing okay. We can we can sit at the dinner table at six p.m. local time and have a nice meal with family and friends and relatives, and not have to worry about oh, there's that stray dog down the street that might be the meat for this week. 
which is a, a terrible situation to be on. And it, it's extremely terrible because a lot of aid has gone is going to that country and there's st- and some of the military is stopping it. Now, I don't know if the military, some of those military units are being directly ordered by Maduro to stop it or if some of those uh, units are just anarchist, evil, anti, like just hurt anybody they can. It's just, it is a very concerning situation and I, I can't, I just, I, I don't know what the end result is going to be. And it's just, it, it makes me very, very, very mad. And do we know if the uh, Kashmir conflict is going anywhere? Okay, uh, good news uh, from the BBC. It looks like Pakistan has handed back the captured Indian pilot. Um, and there it looks like the tensions are going to uh, relax and this is going to go well. <laughs> Hopefully this is like, you know, uh, the, the two guys... Uh, you know, hopefully this this tension relaxes and the pers- and f- like f- nobody really really cares. <laughs> uh, well, not cares. Like nobody really seeks to harm anybody. But it is a concerning situation nonetheless. Um, like I I've it, it's just this is a time when when uh, when you have two nuclear powers that have a history of tension between each other. Uh, and a not positive like they've they view each other as ro- as like existential threats which indian pakistan are in a way they both sort of write themselves off as like the others destroy or or like they'll be destroyed by the other guy like they need to foster a more peaceful atti- attitude towards each other and also um one good thing about pakistan i don't know about this about military the military in india but i know the pakistan armed forces the nuclear uh, groups, the nuclear armed units are considerably more secular and like, sort of like this is a last ditch thing, like we only launch these nukes when it looks like we have no like, we are at the brink of annihilation and this is the only way we can respond back, it's not like, we have these nukes as a deterrence to stop somebody from launching a war against us, but we're not gonna pop them off because an airplane got shot down sort of thing, and hopefully cooler heads like that also exist in the Indian infrastructure, military infrastructure that say like hey, you do realize they've got nukes, we've got nukes, and this is going to end bad, and it's probably like a three to five minute flight time between their silos and our silos and their major cities and our major cities. Let's not let's not start doing this, because I don't know if they're... I, one thing I don't know about India and Pakistan's uh, nuclear weapon systems are are they accurate enough to hit specific targets, or are they city busters? Uh, which is more horrifying. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There, there is that. <laughs> so let's go into some Canadian political BS. <laughs> so any Canaders, any uh, Canadian listeners, Canaders, oh God, my my tongue is being a piece of shit right now. Um, you probably, uh, if you're if you've lived in Canada or you read Canadian news, you probably have heard of this uh this contracting group called SNC Lavalin, and the scandal going around them. Them, which is a they're a contracting firm out of Montreal. They have various government contracts. They've also done gotten the Canadian government to assist them in getting international contracts, such as in Libya, which it looks like they may have used Canadian money to get the jobs in Libya to then pay fifty thousand dollars to for escorts and potentially prostitutes for Muammar Gaddafi's son. It, stuff doesn't look that great, and they were they were under investigation. 
the independent um, prosecutor, which uh, Stephen Harper put into law when he was elected prime minister, when the Conservative Party was elected to P majority in the late 2000s after the uh, sponsorship scandal, um, they were the that office was investigating them via the RCMP, and the RCMP recommended through this office um, prosecution. But that recommendation didn't come until after the Conservative Party had been uh, removed as the primary uh, parliamentary power, and Justin Trudeau and his his Liberal Party had won the last election. And he had put this very, very, very intelligent um, uh, indigenous woman as the head of that, as the, um, uh, what's the phrase, uh, Attorney General for Canada. Because now can she, and then they passed in an omnibus law a deferred prosecution rule where they can defer prosecution if they think that the group organization that's being prosecuted, if the people who are involved in it who caused the problem are absolutely no longer part of it and the cultural style of the company has changed and that there's no reason to punish them now because those people who caused the problem are gone. So the speculation is is that, um, gosh, uh, the attorney general, the former attorney general who was under Trudeau, said that she felt pressured by people in the prime minister's office and people in the finance office and a few other groups and then kind of came to the head where she was kind of like, no, we're, we're, we're doing this prosecution. I'm not going to get involved in the way of um, the independent prosecutor who says, like, this is, has to be done. And SNC Lovelin had, had lobbied that, no, we're, we're not the same company as the guys who did this criminal activity, so we shouldn't be punished for it. Now, maybe there is an argument to that when it goes to court date, but I would say that's something that to be discovered in court, not to be discovered in, in the political sp- sphere. And specifically since they seem to be very well connected to the liberal government, I'd be like, you're having your day in court. And if a company who was very well connected to the Conservative Party of Canada did something, I would say, you're going to have your day in court too. You need to have your day in court. You need to have your day in an impartial courtroom where there is a prosecutor who is not politically motivated one way or the other of what this outcome is going to be. He is just enforcing the law. So she eventually like came to a head and she got demoted to Veterans Affairs, which is going from the Minister of Justice to Veteran Affairs. That is a considerable demotion. Not saying that the Veterans Affairs are not important. Like It's very important to take care of our veterans. Don't, don't uh, anyone take me out of context on that. Like, the veterans of Canada need the best they get. They should be getting the best health care of the government uh, the, the government is providing. And it should be an honorable position to take care of and to give the those who have decided to sacrifice the most to, for the freedoms of us, they, need, they should really be respected the most. And frankly, they should be getting the benefits that the representative, the House of Representative members are getting, that the parliament is getting. They shouldn't be getting less than that. And it's stupid that they are. And I blame every party for that. Like, It should be, hey, you shouldn't be getting $120,000 a year being a m- member of parliament. You should be getting $60,000 a year. And then somebody will say there's an argument that they need to get paid more so they're not corruptible. Well, it seems like they're corruptible no matter what. Uh, it seems moral compass is more about r- limiting the interaction of government, not how much the government employees are getting paid. So this all happens, and it looks like that Trudeau could, could will not be able to ride this wave out, and it looks like he could lose the next election. I don't know if there's going to be a majority government next federal election, but it doesn't it doesn't look good for him. It looks like he wasn't in control of his party, or that 
the only time he was, it was all for political gains. He pushed her out. I don't know. If, we don't know if that's evidence that he actually moved her that way or not. Um, he did say that it was because of the like the person who had left one position was the reason she moved from one place to another, which a lot. E- e- like, here's this. Even the liberal Globe and Mail's like, that doesn't make any sense. Why move her from a position that nobody was coming in on to a position that this wasn't even empty anyway? The guy who left wasn't in this position. It seems a little strange. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I don't know, I'm, but it's really weird, and it, it's 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 a scandal that shows that, and and this is something known. Like, there's a lot of Quebec companies that are have weird connection to government that seem to get away with a bit more than they should. Like, I, I I'm there was something involving the large bridge in Montreal about it's being refurbed and new lighting that the RCMP or that the Quebec police are looking into. And I don't know if that was SNC Lovelin or another like big company, a big investment firm like that, a uh, big contractor that was doing stuff that was definitely overcharging and failed to meet expectations. But it seems like that's something that happens in Montreal and Quebec. Not a, you know, that's something that shouldn't be happening at all. And these things don't seem to happen with non-government operations. Like when they're building properties that aren't government involved, you don't really see this sort of like, oh, it's coming in way over budget, way under effective and falling apart. It seems to be only when the provincial government of Quebec is involved, the federal government of Canada is involved in these it's these big contracts where problems start to happen. So let's go, um, let's continue down the stream to Alberta politics because we will be having a provincial election this year in Alberta where Rachel Nutley and the NDP will be squaring off against Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party of Alberta, which is really made up from the Wild Rose Party and the Old Conservative Party of Alberta, Progressive Conservative. So let's see how this is um, shaping up to be. I need to like make a better desk here for myself, or at least like line things up better uh, for myself. <laughs> but um, the only thing I know about this is, first of all, I'm not an NDP fan because the NDP are a pseudo-socialist organization. Like they they say, oh, democratic socialism, but it you know they're 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 socialists. They don't actually understand how Scandinavian socialist-like countries exist. No, I say socialist-like because they've all Scandinavian countries are moving away from socialism more towards free market capitalism. It's just they're going the other way now. Uh, but how how I approach it is is that uh, they are very much pro-government intervention in the industries, um, which they have done. Um, and Notley is as um, when I'm watching YouTube, I'm seeing a lot of Rachel Notley ads on YouTube. Like, oh, she's done great, and I'm also seeing a lot of, like, Here, here's how, like, good stuff going in Alberta, and a lot of people, uh, are, a lot of political science professors in Alberta, specifically some in Edmonton and some in Calgary, are saying, you don't run a government ad saying things are going well, and look what we did. You run a government ad saying, like, hey, um, just to let you know, your water supply is not doing that well, uh, you should be doing stuff, or hey, here's weather warnings, or... Um, here's ICE issues, and like, you know, usually you run government, um, I wouldn't say advertisements, but infomercials, if things are going wrong, or you need to update uh, people on events going on in their community, like, Alberta's suffering from an energy crisis, uh, there's going to be low power, so maybe try to reduce your power consumption in your house, you know, gas, like, uh, gas shipments are down, you know, you do stuff like that, like, conserve, don't go out, there's a major weather warning, that's where government... Uh, should be getting infomercials and information like commercials out. But 
hey, look at Alberta. We're doing great. We're doing stuff like that. Where there's these ads on TV about that and on YouTube and on the internet. It seems a little bit too pro-propaganda. Now, for myself, it's like, I don't like the conservatives doing that. I didn't like them when they did it. I don't like that Andy Peer doing it. The government is only there to inform you, hey, are things going well or not? And if things are going well, shut up and make them stay well. If things are going to shit, figure out why they're going to shit and help us get fix it. And if it turns out they're going to shit because you're in the way, get the fuck out of the way. But, so there's that. Um... She did a campaign stop in Lethbridge at, at the hospital, which is against uh, the uh, Alberta Health Health uh, System um, Services rule, where you're not supposed to campaign, do any political stuff in the hospital. And of course, her staff is like, "Well, she was in the public section of the hospital." Well, almost every section of the hospital is public because they're owned by the provincial government, so of course it's public. That's like uh, you know saying you can't campaign in a cemetery. That's uh, all the cemeteries in the. No, that's terrible. You can't campaign in, in non-government... Uh, you can't campaign in privately owned schools. Um, you can't campaign in schools. Uh, but I'll... Like, make a rule, make a law saying that you can't do political campaigning in schools because government's not supposed to take... The school system is not supposed to take one side or the other. And yet then they say... So private schools say, like, okay, there's going to be no election stuff here. Government schools are like, well, we're techni- we're technically a public space, so we can actually say what we want. It seems really sort of like, ah, like we're stretching the line here to make a loophole work. And I, I and, and the problem is more about this. What I'm trying to get at is, is that Rachel Notley and her um, and the NDP in Alberta. First of all, they're not running with the NDP name because the NDP name is a very damaging brand <laughs> name in Canada. And also damage, extremely damaging in Alberta. Like, if you're running NDP, the national NDP is not liked here in Alberta at all. But if you're running um, under Rachel Notley's name, which they totally are, because she's pretty much the figurehead of the party and the only person people know. Like, besides from the, her deputy, uh, minis- deputy premier, who was also the head of the health system, which kind of explains why they might have gotten around that when they shouldn't have, have... Um, they know when they're going to call the election because in Canada, the government calls the election. Like, the sitting party calls an election. Like, they have to do it every five years at max. They have five years, but then they, you know, they usually call it every four years. But it's a 34-day campaign from when they call to when the actual vote happens. I think it's 34 days. It might be a little bit longer, but not much longer than that. It's usually just over a month in time that the uh, parties get to campaign. But Notley and her group is campaigning now under Rachel Notley's name. Jason Kenney and the Conservatives and the other... and the uh, Alberta Liberal Party and the Alberta Green Party and various other groups, they don't have an ability to... They don't know when Notley's going to say, hey, the election starts now. Uh, it's going to be... We're going to call the election now. So from then till now, uh, we're going to call the election in four, in four weeks. Weeks. That's when we're going to say, hey, the election's happening. We can run ads for those four weeks while the other guys are like, when is the election going to happen? They can't put up signs beforehand, but we can definitely put stuff on the internet. And I wouldn't say d- smear, but I say besmirch. Uh, I've seen a few where they've besmirched Jason Kennedy, like, oh, they've done they've they've done these selective edited ads with um, they say eight real Albertans. And I don't, I'm not going to say they're not real Albertans. I would just like to see their political stance prior to going on. Every time I see these commercials, uh, being a political scientist that I am, am by uh, university education, 
I think of all the ways that these can be done in propaganda, and they are propaganda. And it can be, hey, this is a regular person. Okay, what's his voting affiliation? Is he, has he donated money to any political party? I want to know that. I can, you can't run an ad for me to say, here's eight Albertans, here's what they think. I say, I look at that and be like, hmm, interesting. Uh, you don't discuss their political thing, their political uh, affiliation, their political givings, their political leanings. Uh, do they have any connection to the party via friends, family, relatives, uh, you know, roommates in college you know stuff like that like i want to know all that it's the seven degrees of kevin it's a kevin bacon sort of thing and i think that's a logical argument to walk down is to say hey you can't run these campaign ads and run the way they are and unfortunately they do they do work to a degree because people are like oh people have confirmation bias so of course they're looking for something that agrees with them and that's what these ads are for it's like people who are more likely to vote in that direction or don't like jason kenny because of his personality they they like that, but maybe they don't. But then they don't spend time researching the event, and they uh, and granted, I'm looking at uh, government campaign ads for uh, for elections and wishing that they were done to the degree of properly done university uh, papers that have to be heavily cited and heavily like evidenced. And when you take a stance, you can't just say like, uh, you know, ice is cold because it feels cold, and therefore. Uh, the world's going to get colder because of ice, so we should burn more fossil fuels to melt more ice. And I just like it hot. It's more like, you know, have to put some real evidence and research into that. And that's how these ads are run, is to make them, to their excuses, you should be doing it. And it's like, we're going to give you a set amount of information, and some of it's going to be facts, some of it's going to be contextually void facts. It's like, here's something we're going to say, and yet the context is going to mean everything, but we've completely taken the context away from it, so you have no idea where we stand on this or not. And that's... uh, I wish that there was more journalism going after that, because it seems shoddy to me that the journalists in Alberta aren't slamming her on this as much as they could, but I, I, I don't know. Are the journalists in Alberta more liberal than conservative? Maybe. It seems quite typical that they are. I just... I don't like that. So, of course, what's happening is the way how this is going and how they get to, they know when they're going to call the election, how much time it's going to be from then till now. They can lengthen that out as much as they possibly can. It sounds like a corrupting force and a propagandizing force, and they can totally get away with it. It does bring an argument for set uh, election dates, like in the United States, where every two years the Congress is having the House of Representatives, the Federal House of Representatives is getting elected. But then you get into a election industry. It becomes an industry to itself, which in the United States, we see that it's uh, A, tons of money are going into it. B, it never really stops. Like, the elections never really, really stop. They just, you know, it's all about getting sound bites on the hill, and it's all about doing stuff like that. And that's the argument against having set times. And having only 34 days to campaign, if it was ruled that that's the only time any party can campaign at all. Like if it found out if there was a like independent arbitrator, uh, you know, our independent investigator sitting up in Edmonton who saw these Rachel Notley ads and then immediately said, said those ads are criminal or like aren't legal for the election act because they're promoting her when there is no election going on. She doesn't need to have her poll numbers boosted when she's not up for vote. But again, more government intervention, which isn't always as good. Eventually, that would be used against the... Eventually, that would somehow be perverted as a way to manipulate and force uh, other parties to 
not have the ability and one party to have benefits. It just it it seems bad. I, I'd rather have a free for all of chaos than a very orchestrated, choreographed. Uh, one side gets twenty minutes and one side gets one minute, but but even chaos is a little too chaotic and doesn't work that well. So let's go. Let's uh, rush on to the last two things I can really talk about. Uh, so the Super Bowl happened at the start of February, almost a month ago exactly. Uh, that was a thing. We had a party here, which was good. Um, a lot of uh, memes and jokes are passed around in our group. Unfortunately, two of the uh, guys who are some of the funniest weren't able to make it. One was away on vacation. The other guy was having, you know, he he wasn't having the best of weeks, so he didn't he didn't feel like coming to a Super Bowl party. And, and you know, <laughs> I completely get that. There are times when I don't want to be around regular other people either after having a bad week or a tiring week, like. I had a relatively good week until Thursday, and then it kind of became shitty because a semi-truck in the parking lot uh, at the uh, at the uh, you know business complex I was at got backed a uh, semi-truck backed into my Jeep and damaged it. It wasn't really that bad, but you know it's 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 frustrating. I'm not I'm I was mad about it, but I'm more frustrated because now it's like my Jeep is not in the best condition. It could be. It's not. It's not this beautiful thing that we're... Because now it's like, now there's parts of it that are damaged. That's as far as I'm going to go with that, because I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's right of me to talk anymore about that until it's all settled and done, and even then, there are parties involved in that that I... I as much as I want to emotionally blame them, shit happens. And it may have not been there. Like, you know, sometimes you, you just don't think for a minute and it's an accident. And you, the individual who did it, uh, the individual who did the act, shouldn't always besmirch the company that they were working for. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Just like, I, I hope that it it would be, like, I would be judged more as a person. Uh, if I did an accident, it would be more my fault than it would be the company's fault if I wasn't working for the company and stuff like that. So there's, ugh, I don't know. I'm like I have a way of uh, understanding this in my head and it sort of ended up weird. Finally, we have the U.S. and North Korea had a meeting that didn't really go anywhere. Nothing really happened. It was like all this big stuff, and Trump left early, and looks like there were some ideas that could have worked, but nothing actually came out of it. So, you know, that's that. But, hey, at least there was a meeting. And that's not a way of saying, like, oh, look at what Trump did. He actually got a meeting. It's like, hey, at least there was a meeting. I wouldn't care if it was a Democrat, a communist, or anybody who were able to get a meeting to keep to get at least have face-to-face talks with each other to maybe get to a point of understanding and maybe a point of respect so that when they're not shooting missiles off all the time. That being said, I would rather it be like both countries kind of like, hey, you do you, but don't threaten anybody else, and we'll do us, and we'll not threaten anybody else, and you know, just just try to play nice. But that's really about it. That's all I can. That's all I really could think about right now. And I feel like uh, this has been a pretty good episode. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I'll listen to it later tonight when I edit it. <laughs> anyway, this has been episode two, season two. Cheese stick traps. Well, cheese stick trap. I should have said traps. <laughs> Frick. Fuck that. Uh. So that's it. I will see you all. Well, I will talk to you all soon in a various way, and I will be hopefully laying out a roadmap of improvements for this podcast and bringing on more stuff. Uh, but um, that will be for the future as well. And I will be doing multiple more episodes 
this month of March, and I think I am going to record games tonight, but I'm not 100 sure about that. Um, we're planning to play some. Uh, we're planning to play. Uh, oh, jeez, a uh, game that Alex um, has played and that Rob purchased. I hope uh, we'll see. We'll see how it ends up. What happening? It should be fun. Anyway, uh, have yourself a good rest of your week. Uh, hopefully you had a good February and a good rest of your January. And hopefully uh, 2019 has been a pretty good year for you so far. All right, this is Jaws signing off. Bye.